I appreciate you letting me come over here and be part of your Sunday morning with you. It is an absolute joy. And a few things that are on my heart right now that I would like to communicate before we open up God's word together. And that's one, it's just showing appreciation and honor towards due, as Romans 12 commands us. And one thing that I have the privilege of being a part of on Bethel's staff is really seeing the heart of the Bryants and how much they love you. And I also have the joy of living the same subdivision as Jared and Brian, and so they love to walk around. It's a joy. And if one thing we can do is just showing the absolute appreciation for Jared and Sky. Just, they, they absolutely have this, this conviction of they want people to know Jesus Christ. And so it's a joy. Um, a few things on my heart, as well as during the Sunday of just absolutely just reflecting on where Christ is today and a few things that uh, it's not necessarily part of my message. I said one of these things a few weeks ago when I was talking to folks, and uh, I want to repeat it today because it just in God's word, it's just so good of seeing the gospel. And um, the first thing that um, I think will really play into this message today of Jesus' exaltation was uh, recently I had the privilege of looking at the book of Judges in the Old Testament. And if you know anything about the book of Judges, one of the most common themes in this book is everyone did was right in their own eyes. They kept doing it. They kept doing what was right in their own eyes. But um, when you get to Judges chapter 2 particularly, I think that the text actually shows us a great gospel reminder. And it gives us actually like the theme of the book. And so when I was in Judges chapter 2, I said, when I saw here, it says here, in, starting in verse 18, there's a ladder happened in 19. It says, for the Lord was moved um, by pity, by their groaning, because of those afflicted and oppressed. But whenever a judge died, a judge functioned as like the king over Israel back then. Whenever a judge died, the people, Israel, would turn back and became more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. And so when you look at the book of Judges, whenever God would bring a judge to Israel, people would follow God's commandments and they would go after him. But whenever a judge would die, the people would revert to their old ways or actually they said it would get worse than their fathers. And so what's the solution to the book of Judges is the people of God need a king who will never die. And we have that's Jesus Christ. And so for you today to not revert to who you were before, you knew Christ, is you need a king who will sit on the throne forever. And his name is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And that is a beautiful thing that we see with Jesus. Another thing that we see, just the beautifulness of, if that's a word, of Christ's exaltation is in the Exodus 34 when we see Moses asking to see the glory of God. And God says, you cannot see the glory of God. He says, I want to see the glory of God. He says, you can't see the glory of God. So he allowed him to go behind a rock, and God put his hand over Moses' eyes, it says, and then he passed by and says, Moses will be able to see the glory of God on his back. We see that in 1 Kings 19 when Elijah was walking through the same series of questions. He wanted to see the glory of God, but he was not given the privilege to see the glory of God in that moment. Then you fast forward to the New Testament, you see something very fascinating. You see Jesus lead his disciples, James, Peter, 
and they go up on a mountain. And then two folks come in the New Testament in Mark chapter 9. You have Elijah and Moses appear on the mountain of transfiguration. And what do they get to see? The glory of God face to face. And you see, I bring that up again because you see an Old Testament expectation and promise what they wanted to see. And it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, seeing him face to face. And we see this constant pattern of God keeping his word. But we're seeing all this running to this person of who is Jesus. And today we're going to talk about Jesus, where he's at, right here, right now, in this very moment. So we're going to look at this together. So where is Christ? We are tracing Christ at Christmas, and today we're looking at his exaltation. Exaltation to where he is at. Scripture repeatedly tells us that Jesus' exaltation is tied to where he's at. If you go through a series of passages we have on the screen for you, looking here at Mark 16, it says, Then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to him, was taken up into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God. Luke twenty two sixty nine 69 tells us this, But from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Acts 2, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured this out to you yourselves after seeing and hearing. Acts 5.31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. We have the joy of seeing this beautiful display of God the Father place Jesus Christ in this very moment. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. And we're going to examine what does that mean for us? How is that impactful for us? And then like, He's not just sitting there twiddling his thumbs until he's coming back. We're going to see what is he doing in this moment for you? What is God the Father having Christ do? What is he doing for us? One thing you see repeatedly though through these passages is Christ did not exalt himself. God did. We're going through finding Christ at Christmas in a series and today we're concluding where Jesus is currently at the right hand, but he didn't get there by his own terms. Like, he got there because God the Father exalted him. So to really understand, I think, to unpack the subject, I want to invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 2 this morning. And uh, starting in verse 5, we're going to see Christ beautifully. You ever saw a new like, these podiums are super heavy. Are you trying to move these things? <laughs> Like the other day, like, like thank you to my friend in the back. We moved it. I was like, this thing, it's embarrassing for me to carry this thing. This thing's heavy. But this is God's word, starting in verse 5. Have this in mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is 
Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would soften our hearts to your gospel. Lord, I pray that you would bless us today. Lord, I ask that we would seek ways to respond to this gospel. And Father, thank you for making yourself known to us. I ask, Father, that we as a church would see the beauty of Christ in all things and that we would respond rightly. We love you, Lord. And all God's people said, amen. So like any text really in Scripture, there's a lot here to unpack. And, uh, but my basic kind of outline that I want to do for us this morning is Christ's exaltation, those things we're going to see in this text today, is Christ's exaltation brings unity to his church, it brings defeat to his enemies, and it brings salvation to the world. So Christ's exaltation brings unity to his church, defeat to his enemies, and salvation to the world. So the first thing I want us to look at is verse 5 when it says, Have this in mind, which is yours in Christ. That right there is one of those beautiful promises that whenever you see something like that is whatever is Christ is yours. If you're in Christ Jesus, the author Paul here is looking at you saying, I want you to have this very thing in mind because it is Christ and he has it. And if Christ has it, if you are in him, it is yours today. To have the mind of Christ in this text means knowing what's on Christ's mind. To have this in mind is to know the mind of Christ. Verse 5 here functions as a linking section that connects the first four verses, what's following with Jesus' exaltation. What Paul is doing here beautifully is he's connecting your ability to function as a local church and true worship of God. He's having you see the beauty of Christ and have it displayed through your love towards other people. I want you to look here then, verses 1 through 4, to what this means. If he's saying to have this in mind, that this is referring to his previous thought, have this in mind, which is yours in Christ. Look with me at verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy but being of the same mind. Having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you not only look out for your own interest, but the interest of others. So Paul has you thinking of those words when he's talking your love for other Christians, your love for other people in your life. And when he goes through those four verses, he says, have this in mind, which is in Christ, which is yours in Christ. And he does this beautifully and convincingly because which is yours in Christ, he, he then starts to communicate, what did Christ do? How did he function? What is his nature? Because understanding what Christ did and who he is is the only thing that will influence the way for you to walk in Christ's likeness. So we keep going. These four verses are very practical and instrumental. And making sure there's only unity 
is, oh, is not just the church, but within every relationship of your life. To have this in mind amongst yourself is referring back to believers to command to function with one another based off the victory Christ had through them. This is a beautiful promise because Paul says not only have this in mind amongst yourselves, but in order for you to love your spouses well as Christ did, in order for you to love this congregation, is to see the beauty of Christ and what he has done. Because the victory of Christ fuels the way for you to love one another. I mean, to really outline this for us, can you imagine a reality where Cubs fans and White Sox fans got to celebrate together over the victories of their teams? Right? This guy shake his head is impossible. <laughs> I mean, I'm from Cleveland area, so I'm a Browns, Cleveland Indians, old Cleveland Guardians fan now. And so um, I know about heartache when the Cubs beat us in 2016, which it's whatever, you know. <laughs> one of my coworkers, this is bad waters when I'm off my nose, but one of my coworkers, Andrew Moffat, always loves to wear his, he says his favorite shirt is the greatest day in history happened when the Indians blew a 3-1 lead. And you're just like, okay, obviously you don't know how to have unity in Christ. <laughs> But besides that, the power of the gospel, seeing the victory of Christ, propels our relationships with one another. I said this recently um, when I was talking to folks, but the power of seeing a crucified Christ and his and that power to bring people together means that could be the foundation of every relationship, relationship you have. One of my um, uh, best friends throughout seminary, um, we met just purely because we go to the same church and we're studying scripture together. And his name is David Rulkachar. And I remember him looking at me saying, Foster, if it wasn't for Jesus, we wouldn't be friends. And as you say that, I was like, I thought I was a pretty likable guy. But besides that, it's like the bones of that is that we didn't have like interests. It's not like I wanted to go to his chess club, like I'm saying that seriously, and, I, and he didn't want to come to me try with my metal band when I'm in seminary. I know, like I'm a second metal guitar player. It doesn't look like that. But when, when those like interests aren't there, it's like what's it grounded in? It's grounded is when you see Christ and the victory that's Christ. And nothing else compares to that. Nothing else matters. And the fuel for your conversations are nothing but how does the victory of Christ influence us to love one another? And that is the victory of Christ, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, that when you see that Christ and your mission is to please that Christ, you're going off and every conversation you have is fueled by that. So I can look at my friend David when he says that. It's not be offended by it, but for us to have real joy. Because it's not like because if, like, if I get off the basketball team, if we're not on the same basketball team anymore, we're not friends. That shows you a, a shallow friendship. It's rather like, I love you because Jesus Christ bought you with the blood, his blood. And that will fuel our conversations. So it gets me a question for you in this room. Christ's exaltation brings unity to his church because you have the mind of Christ. But the question I have is, does your fellowship with other Christians show that you exalt Christ? Can we see Christ being exalted from our friendships? Is that something that it's proclaimed? 
that's where it gets really nitty gritty when we're looking at verse 3 in this section particularly. Verse 3, it's like, do not look out for your own interest, but the interest of others. And Paul can walk through those practical ways that we love one another, not because he saw the same Hallmark movie that communicates every Hallmark movie that's ever was, but it's because he knows Christ and what he's done, and that's how you should treat other people. And he looks at those first three verses, first four verses rather, of if there's any encouragement, if there's any love, any of those things, because those things are true, does your relationship with other Christians show that you exalt Christ? That you have the mind of Christ? That you know him? That you know Jesus? The beauty of Christ is seen by how he perfectly embodied all the things we're commanded to. I want you to look at verse 6. When Paul says, have this in mind, which is yours in Christ, verse 6 tells us this. Who, Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We are called to do nothing out of selfish ambition. If you notice the parallels between these texts, as we're called to do something, Paul immediately traces back to an attribute of what Christ did. When we're called to act this way, look at what Christ did. So much more so. He goes on. Jesus emptied himself. We're called to be in humility as count others as more significant. Jesus took the form of the servant. We look out for the interest of others. Jesus was born in the likeness of men. We lower ourselves to serve our fellow men. Whenever you're seeing this exchange thing, it's not just this pull yourself up by this moralistic bootstraps to get better. It's the only thing that will compel you to love one another, to serve the unservable. In order for you to function is to see the beauty of Christ. It's not for you just to get better. That won't help. It won't do anything. Because you by your own means will not be able to. That's Hard news for you if you do not know Christ, but it's beautiful news because someone else did it. And his name is Jesus. Your unity as a church is dependent upon your relationship to Christ. Because I love it as Jared was up here in the beginning of service when he's talking about praying for one another, to loving one another. Because at the end of the day, all these programs that we set up, none of those things will work unless you actually encounter Jesus Christ the righteous. Nothing will fuel conversations. You can't attract people to a group. You won't be able to formalize the gospel. We can't do that. The only thing we can do is to point people to the only person who ever did anything perfectly. And his name is Jesus. As we reflect on Christ and how we are to compare to what he did to have that fuel us... Paul does something by kind of mentioning the first ever Christ hen in here in text. I want you to see this chart here behind me, but you're seeing how Christ fulfilled all of the servant songs of the Old Testament. Everything what it meant to be the suffering servant, Christ did. 
We have here, he emptied himself. Isaiah 53 tells us he poured out his spirit. He was a servant. Isaiah 49, he was a servant. And the list goes on and on of Christ, how he perfectly embodies and how he fulfills everything. This gives us encouragement in a few different ways. First, God is faithful to his promise. He is orchestrating things to bring redemption to happen. When Genesis 3.15 happened to when God told the serpent, serpent you, there will be enmity between your offspring and the woman's offspring. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. That first instance of the gospel being proclaimed in scripture, Genesis 3.15, of when the gospel's first ever explicitly seen there, we're showing that that ignited the kickstart of redemption to happen, and the rest of the Old Testament is revealing that's what that looks like. And here we see that suffering servant. Jesus, his, his foot was bruised, he was crucified, but he crushed the head of the serpent when he rose from the dead. And that right there is the story arch of scripture that we see this beautiful outline for us. And as Paul transitions here to verse 8 and getting into verse 9 when he starts to talk about how Christ was exalted, we see Christ beautifully. Next, as Christ's exaltation brings unity to his church, it brings defeat to his enemies. Starting verse 8. And being found in the form a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is because of his death and more so Christ's resurrection that his enemies are defeated. Jesus was able to defeat sin, death, and Satan because he fully satisfied the requirements that were needed of him. Jesus emptying himself does not mean, as we've talked about in previous messages, I'm sure Jared has brought up, or when Steve has simulcast over here, is when Christ emptied himself, it does not mean that he lowered his deity, not that he made himself less God. Rather, the text that means for us is that he added humanity onto himself. He was able to come and relate to us. He was able to come and bear and have sympathy with one another because he added humanity to himself. This is what makes Jesus' attributes fully God and fully man. We can talk about that idea that I was just going to chew on for the rest of our lives, but I don't want to distract us from the point here. Because Jesus did this, humbling himself on the cross to the point of even death, God exalted him which defeated his enemies. This is good news for us if you are in Christ Jesus. Paul can say that the name of Jesus in verse 9 or 9 and 10 when he gets here, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. When he's saying that, everyone will submit to King Jesus. The enemies of God are forced to bow because Jesus is we have to hear that he is exalted at the right hand of the Father. Whatever I'm seeing this, this realization of like when you have to acknowledge who someone is, I, 
Dude, does anyone like Lord of the Rings in here? Does there, is there any like Lord of the Rings fans? Are we good? It's like some people, some people are shy. They don't want people to know they're Lord of the Rings fans. But besides that, one of my favorite scenes is like I love The Fellowship of the Ring is my favorite book and movie. I just love all the narrative building and all that stuff. But one thing I love is when Boromir uh, is arguing with Aragorn. He's saying, like, who do you think you are? What do you think, like, who do you think you could tell us what to do? And Legolas, or a.k.a. Orlando Bloom at the time, he stands up and he's like, do you know who you're talking to? This is Aragorn, son of Arathorn, the rightful king of Gondor. And you're seeing that so many people, like, worship him. They're like, they pray, like, wow, they respect him. But then you're seeing the contrast. How does Boromir respond in the text? I don't know if you know Lord of the Rings, but Boromir says, we don't, Gondor needs no king. But Aragorn's kingship isn't dependent as, as Boromir's opinion. Boromir and everyone else will bow regardless if you acknowledge him king or not. More so is Jesus. It doesn't require your personal opinion. It, do, it doesn't matter if you don't want to acknowledge him now. What matters is that you will bow in either praise or judgment. That's what it means. And when we look at Jesus Christ, the righteous, we will either bow and worship him and we'll see as we see in Revelation, casting our crowns, worshiping him, or we'll see as the text unfolds in Revelation, you'll bow in judgment as you are then separated from him. And this is a chance where I just want to invite you to repent. I want you to invite you to repent of your sins. I want you to invite you to acknowledge Jesus as king to serve him, ask for forgiveness of your sins, turn to Christ. Because one thing we're no I want you to notice here as Paul outlines is Christ didn't come and like as the conquering king in the first one with a sword and like force people to bow. He came as the suffering servant who came and died for your sins, having you in mind, how he humbled himself, taking the full wrath of God upon himself. But one thing I don't want you to be confused with, when Christ comes back, it will be with the sword. It will be in judgment. It will be to bring back his own. It will be then to cast out those who do not follow him. And this is to where Christ's exaltation matters because Christ has all the authority to do so. He is at the right hand of God. If you are not in Christ today, another way to say this is you are an enemy of God. If you are not in, you will either be with Christ through submitting to his kingship or as the rest of scripture outlines or cast into hell. And that's where I want to invite you to turn to the gracious king, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And this is to where, as we see in verse 9, it says, Therefore God exalted him and bestowed upon him the name. As what is the name? What is it? And that is where the text goes on as it finishes. The name is Lord. He is Lord. That's the name he gets. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord. 
and we follow him. And because he is the Lord, it gets us to our last point. His lordship brings salvation to the world. Christ's exaltation brings salvation to the world. Look, I want you to look at this. At verse 11, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of Father. Like my previous point, every tongue will confess by either judgment or salvation. We rejoice today because Jesus is at the right hand of God and you can be saved today from your sins. You can be completely new. You can have be in right standing with God. You can have all of your ledger cleaned. You can stand before Christ and be fully accepted. You can be 100% known and be fully 100% loved. And that is the salvation that Jesus Christ brings in his exaltation. He is with the Father. You have salvation. Another thing to notice just contextually in the book of Philippians, I want you to notice, is the section perfectly functions as a bookend to Paul's thought in verse 2. We start, basically this whole thought is, is Philippians 2, 1 through 11. That's like a thought for Paul. And he starts in verse 2 with like his thought to when he says, I want you to complete my joy by being of the same mind. And here he says, he tells everyone that everyone will confess that Jesus is Lord. We have same mind, everyone confessing the same thing. Everyone in unison means we're all saying Jesus is Lord and he will bring salvation to everyone. That is the book and he wants us to see. Because today we are directed by God's word to come to the conclusion that we are only saved by a Savior who humbled himself, emptied himself, took the form of a servant, and was born in the likeness of men. And to say it another way, the cross is the measure of Jesus' humility, the lengths to which he would go to the Father for obedience. But the thing I really want us to land home was this. is like, what is Christ doing today? Right now, what is he doing? And a passage that complements this text really well is 1 John 2. 1 John 2, 1 beautifully captures what, if you are in Christ, this is what he's doing for you. Look at this with me. 1 John 2, 1. Just this one verse. My little children, this is John writing to these, his church. I, I write to you these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Just this one verse has so much stuff in there for you, Christian. So much beautiful things packed in there for you that I want you to leave today. If you are in Christ, if you repented today, or if you've been following him for years, this passage is so encouraging for you. Because as I was going through this this past week, it's really cool. You, if you dig it out through the English, you can. But forgive me for being a nerd, but the Greek captures this awesome. If you really go to the, the and if we are studying this in Greek, the tenses change. John, when he's writing this, 
He uses an active aorist indicative tense. That means nothing to you. Don't worry about it. And then he switches to the present active tense when he switches. That matters because when we're seeing this, and when he says, if anyone does sin, he uses the active aorist tense. What that tells you, to boil it all down, is to when you embody sin, to when you do sin, of just like not a specific sin, rather, not saying when you sin by lying, when you sin by sexual morality. He doesn't name the specific sin. He just is clarifying to when you have sin in your life, when you do sin, but that's paired with the if, saying in Jesus, you are free to never to have to sin. It's not attached to you. It says, if anyone does sin, you're free from it. It's not attached to you. You can grow into kill sin. When you identify, if you ever say the words, I guess I'll always be blank. No, 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 no. That's a lie from hell. Don't believe that. You can never say, like, I will always be a worrier. It's like, stop it. You're, if you're in Christ, you're detached from that sin. First John 2 tells us explicitly. But here's the thing that we can look at. When he changes, John says, we have an advocate. He gets exclusive. He includes himself. We, Christians, you and me, we have an advocate. And he transitions to the present active, meaning this. When you have general sin in your life, when you have sin that you do, he says, bring it in, friends. God will forgive that one, that one, that one, that one. That one, the specific, every sin he sees and every sin will be paid for and forgiven before God the Father with Jesus Christ. And it is incredible, the advocacy of the Father for you today. Of Jesus sitting at the right hand in all of his power, he can look at you. I don't know everyone's name in this room, but he can look at you and say, I know you. And I love you. And every single intentional, unintentional sin I see, I am specific in my nature that I know it. And I'm going to tell the Father I paid for that one. And so that tells you encouragement today. There's nothing you can do to be away from the Father's love. Because Christ loves you. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then for what reason? Why? For the glory of God the Father. Our job is to exalt Christ, who brings glory to the Father. Everything is about God's glory. God's glory. Another way to say it, God's glory is his holiness going public. That's a good way to know glory. God's glory is his holiness going public. Like you see how, in, how separate, how beautiful he is. It's all about him, as we like to say around here. And that's what we do. To summarize all again is verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him every name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of the Father. So what does Christ's exaltation do for you today? Today, 
Bethel Cedar Lake can be the most unified congregation in the world. Christ's exaltation brings unity to his church. Christ's exaltation brings defeat to his enemies. When you see the wicked looking like they're winning, when you see the enemies of God feeling like the world's upside down, when you're seeing people who have personally hurt you seem like they're getting off scot-free in the whole thing, you can know that that is not how it's going to end and that Christ's exaltation will mean that the enemies of God will be defeated. And lastly, what does it do? Today, you can be saved. Today, you can have forgiveness of sins. Today, you can be right with the Father by only one way. Jesus Christ, the righteous.